right, welcome back to Anya's by Alma, um, podcast all about Anya Varda and her films, where we go episode by episode, film by film, with loose thematic or chronological progression through them. Um, and today I am joined by arguably the originator of this podcast, my dear friend, Billy Thegenis. Billy, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm doing well. How are you? Doing pretty well myself, yeah. <laughs> Hell yeah. Um, so yeah, I was joking with you before that you kind of originated this podcast because you and I were taking that very idyllic walk through Central Park <laughs> yeah. over the summer. Um, and I was talking about, I don't know, like being unemployed and a bit aimless in the city. And you were like, all right, here's what you do. You start an Anya Sparta podcast. You call it Anya Spyama. You do it. And I was like, okay. I like needed that life plan just handed to me on a plate. So forever indebted. Thank you, Billy. <laughs> You're welcome. Yeah, it was it was fun employment. And, it, and it, it just popped into my head. I just totally saw. I think you were trying to follow up like what to do next after a film series that you, like a film screening series that you were doing over Zoom during uh, during COVID and uh, or during quarantine. And uh, yeah, I was just like, this is, I just, it just came to me. So if I didn't talk to you, you're, you're really the inspiration for it. Because if I didn't talk to you, it would have never crossed my mind. Thanks, man. I appreciate <laughs> that. Yeah, I forgot that it was kind of born out of film club because I ran like a somewhat weekly film club through through COVID, um, which Billy attended for a few sessions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah, and once that kind of fizzled as people, you know, got vaccinated and uh, had more of a life than to spend time on Zoom with me, and I was, yeah, happy for them. But I was like, I don't know what to do. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, this podcast was sort of the next expression of my love of movies and my love of this woman. So it's been fun. Um, but cool. So I'll start out, I guess, Billy, by asking you, like, what's your history with Anya Sparta? Um, I know you've seen at least a couple before, but if you want to talk about how you came to her work or what you've seen. Well, I, I actually don't, I haven't seen much of her work actually. Um, coincidentally, um, the first time I watched anything that she ever did was the day that she passed away. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, the day that she died, the day I found out um, that she died, I saw a movie. Uh, it's the one that she made with that dude, JR. Oh, um, Faces Places. Yeah. Faces Places. So Faces Places was playing at the theaters at the time um, when I first heard about it. but um, And I believe it was streaming on Netflix at the time. And um, so I hadn't seen much of her work. I, I might have, I think the only thing I had seen prior to that was the Black Panther short. That might have been the only thing I'd ever really seen of hers, um, and um, I and uh, I I don't know. It was just like kind of like a it was it was kind of one of those things because knowing you and knowing other people that I knew how much she meant to you, it it made me feel like I had been missing out. Like I kind of like you know I kind of played myself not really looking into her work. So that very day, that is the very first time I watched a feature film of hers, and it was beautiful it was I really really loved it I don't know where it ranks in terms of her work but I I thought it was excellent I it was really emotional for me too because um in the film there's a conversation I believe the JR has with his grandmother and my grandmother 
um, had just passed away. So it was really touching for me to, to mm-hmm. see it. Um, you know, like she just passed, like, like she passed away the, the year before. Um, so it was really like, it just, you know, it was still kind of, you know, still kind of a sensitive spot for me, but, um, yeah. I, I really loved it. I really, really thought it was amazing. Um, yeah. Yeah. I feel like Varda's work by and large is such a great, like filmography in terms of studying younger generations, relationships with older generations. And like, right. since Ani Sparta was making movies for like 60 something years, she sort Damn. of is able to approach it from both sides, being a young person studying these things and then uh, being the older person herself kind of in these relationships. I always find that very moving in her work. It's a beautiful full circle, you know, to be to be a young filmmaker in your, you know, 20s to 30s. And then you live a whole life in the middle of your life from your 30s to 60s. And then you're still doing it from 60 to 90. But you have such a you've you've earned this like this amazing perspective as like a standard bearer, you know, of like, I mean, the amount of people that she's inspired is like it's it's, you know, it's countless, you know. Very true. Yeah. Well, today we're going to talk about two shorts and one feature, which is like, I don't know if it, I would call it an anthology film, but like multiple directors had a hand in it. Um, yeah. But yeah, this I think is the first time that I've somewhat deviated from being strictly chronological. Um, mm. I've sort of been following that Criterion box set. They <laughs> have it kind of chronologically working through her career and each disc has shorts and a feature that like makes sense and go together. Um, but they didn't have far from Vietnam, which is the feature we'll talk about today. And they didn't have Salut les Cubains. Um, but I had seen, um, Salut les Cubains and, and Black Panthers before and always felt like obviously just they had the link of being her directly documenting political movements, um, two shorts. And then I had heard about Far From Vietnam for a long time, um, but never really put in the work to track it down. So, yeah, I just thought that they would be a good trio um, to talk about together, and specifically with you, Billy, because you're one of the more politically aware and politically active uh, people I know, and... I think I at least I mean correct me if I'm wrong, but I sense a lot of interest in you and like where the political and the cinematic overlap. Um, Absolutely. So yeah, I, I'm really excited to talk about these three films with you. I'm I'm yeah I'm I'm stoked. Um, I actually went about this. I didn't watch it in chronological order either because I believe the first one was Salut de Cuba, so that was the earliest film. Um, that I, that of the, of the three, but I, I, if I'm not mistaken, um, but I was like, I just want to watch the shortest film to the longest film just so I could get these notches under my belt. <laughs> Hell yeah. Gear up for it. That's funny. I think I did the opposite. I started with the feature cause I was like, look, my focus is going to be the best at the beginning of the day. Yeah. So let me see the one that I haven't seen before. Um, yeah. <laughs> And yeah, and I needed, there was a lot of pausing and rewinding in that watch. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I don't know. Is there one that you want to start talking about? I don't want to know if you want to talk about in the order that you watched them or. No, I mean, I'm I'm totally fine talking about them in the order in which they were released. 
Okay, perfect. So that makes Salut les Cubains the first one. I believe that was 1963. I didn't have time to look up the context of her making this film, but I watched there's sort of a, a filmed intro um, of Anya Sarda talking about this in like 2007 or something. And she says that she was invited to Cuba. I'm not sure by whom, like it was the Cuban government. Like what I just don't really know or some sort of, I know in the credits there's like, you know, thanks for the support of the Cuban cinema commission or something like that. So, but she was invited to go and she had a lot of friends in France, sort of left-leaning friends who were really excited about the Cuban Revolution. And so she was like, yes, I will go. And she took just thousands of photographs while she was there. And then she made the short sort of built from those photographs um, where she almost animates them by having them, uh, you know, cut to and fro uh, in quick succession, often set to music. Uh, and yeah, what did you think of this film? I love this movie. I I thought um I I don't know if if she, if she worked with anybody else on it, but it it just reminded me of La Jete by um mm-hmm. Chris Marker. Um I I love the idea of low budget filmmaking that never feels cheap, and I love that she was able to make. I mean, had to have taken hundreds, nearly a thousand plus photos because all of the images that pop up are all rich and all beautiful. And um, to think that someone did that with a with just a you know just a, like a regular thirty five millimeter camera, um, and every and like the storytelling was still amazing. And and I love the narration. I love her voice on this. I love the music. I love how everything was animated. Um, I really enjoyed it. I actually wanted to watch it twice, but um, didn't didn't have the time. But because I I was I found myself really focused on the subtitles, trying to pay attention to what was being said. And then I wanted to go back and watch it again just to take in the images. But I was able to kind of get get a good balance instead of like constantly looking at the bottom of the screen because I wanted to see what I was looking at. But it was it was great. It was it was it was a lot of fun and it made me want to just go to the Caribbean and, you know, um and see my family in Haiti or something. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, I loved her tracing of the um the influence that came from Haiti. Yeah. It was really amazing. That was really cool to see. Um, yeah, like like I've always heard about a good relationship between Haiti and Cuba, actually. Like my dad actually used to talk about that a lot. Um, I'm curious to know what was on her mind when she was making that film. Like, because you're making, like, you know, like, like how do you explain to people that you're making a movie, but all, but you have no film equipment? Like, all you're doing is, like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, you're just taking a bunch of photographs, and people seem to probably open up a bit more because all she's doing is taking photos rather than a microphone and a, and a huge camera lens being in their faces, you know? Right, because she's so famously later in her career switched to digital and video cameras because of the portability and sort of the lack of intimidation of just having a little, like, camcorder in her hand so I feel like this was her early version of that exactly Um, yeah it's a good question I mean the the film itself open the only actual footage is in the very beginning of the film which I had completely forgotten but it opens in Paris at sort of the photo exhibition of her and maybe some other people's photos of Cuba 
Um, oh yes, and so right. that was part of the production. So I'm curious if that, if while she was in Cuba taking photos, the only goal was that photo exhibition, and the film came later. Um, oh, good point. Yeah, I wasn't. I'm not sure, and I, I'm not sure if the, it's possible to research that. Um, but the fact that the exhibition is actually part of the footage. I had totally forgotten. Um, I had just remembered the still photography of this movie. So it was cool to see that like open with the sort of the music in live action. And you see like Alan Renee and like Jacques Demy kind of floating around in the crowd. Um, yeah. So that was cool. Did she know Chris Marker? Yes. Okay. Did Because I'm wondering like if, 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 um, I don't remember what year Elijah Day came out, but I'm wondering if that if that inspired her to make this movie the way that she did. I think Chris Marker was credited in this short as producing or or maybe was as just like a thank you to Chris Marker. I noticed his name. It, yeah, it totally makes sense because I was like, this style seems like it's right up her alley. And especially both of them being French filmmakers, I was like, the odds of her knowing him seem to be high, but I didn't know if they ever collaborated. Matter of fact, I think, he might have had something to do with far with far from Vietnam. Um, he totally did. Yeah. Okay. So there we um, go. That's why I thought I saw his name somewhere recently. Hundred um, percent. But I, I I really dug it. I um I shoot black and white photography all the time. Um and I I'm a huge fan of of La Jete for those who may not know. It's a short film told all through black and white photography, and it's narrated. Um, and I actually came across that film from um, many years ago. There was a movie well before YouTube. There was this website called iFilm, and they used to show. That's what that was my first real inkling into short films of all types. And um, there was a short film uh, called Objects in the Mirror Are Closer Than They Appear, and it was made by this author who was also a filmmaker named Gorman Bacard. And I'd never seen anything like it. I was in college at the time and it was it was all done with digital photography, but it was all stills. I'd never seen, I was truly blown away. And I, I just remember him saying, La Jete is the greatest short film ever. And I'd never heard of it. And um, come to find out that movie got remade to become 12 Monkeys, which is pretty awesome. So that style of filmmaking, I... I really, really immediately recognized it in this short film, and I was like, "Man, I'm, 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 I'm intrigued." Like, I really just, it just, it, it's just a great way to keep, like me particularly, it's just a great way to keep my attention um, on something like that because they just kind of strip away all the, all the things that can make film complicated. Um, yeah. And you know what I mean? Like the ways they could tell a story, they just, they just, it's like the bare bone, most beautiful way to tell a story. Totally. Yeah, it's so funny. I did not... I'm also a huge fan of La Jete, and I did not think of that movie um, in relation to this one. You're absolutely right, and it's... That simplicity is so beautiful in both. I think maybe why I didn't think of it was just tonally those movies are so different. Very. Um, yeah, yeah, where, like, Chris Marker's La Jete is, like, very about memory. It's very dreamlike um, and sort of as he does playing with this notion of the past being the present being the future and all of it sort of meshing together. Right, Whereas right, I right. found Salut les Cubains like so in the present. And I think I remember in her intro, she even says like, please remember that this movie's from 1962. Like don't watch it with your 2021 glasses on. Um, oh, wow. Well, yeah. So yeah, I just found it so grounded in the present of like, 
1963. These are what the people in Cuba were doing. Um, that was life, yeah. Yeah, and that's it. There's nothing, you know, oh, what will this revolution be in the future? Um, there's not even, compared to um, especially far from Vietnam, there's not even that much, like, historical context given right. uh, of it. It's just like, no, this is these are the figures on the ground now, and these are the artists and the people and the sugarcane cutters who, like, are doing their thing in this moment. Um, so it's cool that that style, that form of filmmaking can lend itself to, like, such disparate tones. Yeah, no, it it was a documentary film that was really just through documentary photography, and I'd never, you know, I'd never really seen anything like that before outside of, like, now, you know, every, there's, like, content for everything now, and um, but that that must have been such a novel, creative way to tell a story back then. Um, even though I know she doesn't want me to look at it with, you know, <laughs> with like present day eyes from the twenty first century, but still, I you know, it's um, I, it, it's still a really groundbreaking thing, and um, and I think it, I think I, I think the technique and the way that she made the film still stands to this day. Like I like I I would love to see a short film made like that now. Totally. But yeah, still watching this movie, it made me wish I knew more about the historical context and everything about the Cuban Revolution. Um, especially, maybe this goes back to what you're saying about somewhat struggling with having to divide your attention between the images and the subtitles. Um, but there's such like rapid fire introductions of people in this movie where it's like, and then yes. there's a singer, and then there's this poet, and then, and I was like, ah, like it's <laughs> so much. Um, and it just feels like she was on this whirlwind tour of like meeting all these great people. Um, but it's, it's fast. It is. It's, it's a, and it's, it's a blind spot for me too. What's also pretty impressive um, is that those images of Fidel Castro aren't stock photos. Like yeah. those are actual pictures that she took of him. Malgré les discours interminables et tout à fait enthousiastes de Fidel Castro, C'était difficile, c'était déjà difficile à l'époque. Et quand j'ai photographié le leader Maximo, j'ai vu un homme avec des ailes de pierre. I have to think, like, at that time, in the early 60s, filmmakers like her, especially French filmmakers, really thought that they had the tools to help change the world and change the narrative of how things are. So, you know, as you said in the beginning, in terms of how politics can tie into film and and how it could really help people learn um or or at least my my take on it in terms of how both of them relate to each other um you know i think that film film could be a really useful tool to really show people um just a fresh perspective on something that they might either don't know about or think that they know more about than they actually do mm-hmm. and you know i think Back then, it probably was way more scary and way more taboo because it was such a tumultuous time. Like people were getting assassinated left and right. You know what I mean? Yeah. And you know, people were you know, war was really happening. Like it really felt like it. It really, to me, felt like the '60s was on the brink of the end of the world. And I can imagine how how her as a filmmaker might have felt. You know what I'm saying? Um, just dealing with everything and just getting up and going to Cuba. Um, to do a short film like that, that might've been, you know, 
challenging in and of itself just to get just to get over there you know what i mean but i i really i've very much enjoyed it it was the second one that i watched and i didn't i didn't expect it to be to be this way because the because the black panther short is a bit more serious and i didn't have to do the balance because the narration was in english everybody speaking english so i could really take in what i was watching sure. versus this one i didn't expect to just kind of just be entertained i was just like oh wow this is actually way less serious than I thought it was going to be. And it's really just a beautiful document of a particular time in the Caribbean, in Cuba. And um, yeah, there's a couple of shots of Fidel and other folks like that, but it's not this browbeating, heavy-handed film about revolution to me. It just, it's, it's really about, from what I saw, just like the current state of the time. Yeah, totally. And he, I think the, a great indication of that tone is, um, is the title. Right, right, right. Uh, which is salut les Cubains. So it's like, salut literally means like, a, it's like a casual way to say hello. Um, right, right, right. But it's yeah. also like a salute, like a tribute to these people and, and their culture and their practices and, you know, their, what the revolution had done at the time, uh, which was Absolutely. unprecedented. So Definitely, yeah. So that's cool. Um, awesome. Well, maybe that's a good place to transition to... The Black Panther short. Um, yeah, definitely I feel like because it was in English and it's, you know, as Americans, it's history that we're more familiar with. Um, yeah, a bit more familiar with, yeah. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, what did you think on your... So this is your second watch? This is my second time seeing the film, um, and but I've seen bits and pieces of it before. So there was there's a, there's a documentary that came out a few years ago um, about the Black Panthers, um, I think it was called Leaders of the Vanguard, or Vanguard is in the title, and um, and I I really liked that film, and I saw pieces of uh, of the short film there, so I didn't know I didn't know that these were from Agnes Varda, and I probably saw them over the course of years from way before that because so much of the footage of that you've seen everywhere for years. I feel like every time the Black Panthers are ever referenced in some type of a documentary, they always take from this, like from this film. Um, I was really impressed. I really, really liked it. Um, in particular, the way that it was framed whenever someone was speaking in the background, like w w like whether it was uh, Bobby Seale or whether it was um, uh, Kathleen Cleaver speaking in the background, the way that they had a panther standing right in the foreground yeah. on the right side of the screen, and then you saw the person in the background talking. I loved that. I thought I thought that was just a really great, great way to kind of frame frame everything that was being said. Um, like, it's almost like they looked like a little panther standing on their shoulder, telling them what to do, like in their ear. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Um, you know, it's, it's so crazy that this type of stuff is still relevant, a lot of the stuff that they're talking about. Um, like when one of the gentlemen got in and he spoke about the Black Panther 10-point plan. Number seven, we want an immediate end to police brutality and murder of black people. Number eight, we want all black people to be released from the many prisons, city, county, and state jails that they are now being held in. All of the, So many of the things that he was talking about is still relevant in 2022, and I hated that shit. Yep. I was like, damn, this is... We're still talking about this shit in the in the 22nd year of the 21st century. We're still talking about this. It was a weird thing to take in, but I I was um I really liked what I saw. It was it was beautiful to see all those beautiful black people um recognize their own beauty and really take a stand in terms of where they where they were um 
culturally and in history at that moment. And um, I really saw how long of a shadow Malcolm X casted on them. Totally. He, he crops up quite a bit um, yes. in this short with like what um, Huey Newton's reading while in prison and some of the signs that people are holding. This was, I think, my third time seeing it. And I had seen it. The first time, I think, was when I was still living in Boston, so Mm, like 2017, and just speaking to where I was coming from at that point, it really opened my eyes to a depiction of the Black Panthers I hadn't known because, unfortunately, in school, I think that my impression from just the curriculum growing up in like middle school and high school was, you know, always this militant political group that would carry guns, like that image, and it was a sort of... I think always pitted against MLK pacifist um, branch of civil rights in sort of a unnecessarily black and white way. Right. And so just seeing this footage and, um, and that depiction of these events really opened my eyes. And then the second time I saw it was actually, I revisited it at the height of the George Floyd protests. I was just like, I really want to revisit this short. It's been a few years and yeah, just to echo what you were saying, just how depressing it is, how relevant so much yeah. of it is. Um, and I think this short ends with the story of the Black Panthers is not over. And sure enough. Yeah. And then I, I watched it this time and I guess was struck by some of the visuals of it that you were describing. And I also actually have a note in my notebook about those shots you're talking about of the panther in the foreground with um, whatever oh. speaker in the background which are just such striking shots. Um, And it sort of served to remind me how much of an outsider Anya Sparta is in this context. Like, it seems to me that the guard in the foreground is, like, justifiably wary of her and her camera. Um, Right. And the fact that she includes that, I think, is really important. Absolutely. Um, Yeah, I'm interested to hear what you think about who you think the audience for this movie was at the time um in some ways i i feel like it might be for french people who might be less knowledgeable about these histories because it did feel a bit like educational yeah that's that's what i would think too in i think if anybody especially at the time would have totally understood um their plight a bit more probably would be french people you know um i'm actually realizing when i saw it the first time was also um, during the George Floyd, like around that time, because Criterion had started this, you know, they did this whole, like, remember, like, when every company suddenly wanted to have a Black Lives Matter thing, you know? Yeah, yeah like, last year. So, so um, or 2020, I should say. Um, but, like, every company was doing it from Amazon and everybody. I remember that they did that with with Criterion. And that I think that's where I saw it for the first time. So I'd seen the images before. Um, from other things, but that was my first time actually seeing the body of work that was being referenced in these other documentaries. Um, and and I don't even know where a movie like that would have been available for an American audience to see. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. It seemed like maybe it could have been something that could have ended up on PBS or something like that. Um, but uh, yeah, it totally struck me as possibly like a festival movie that was making the rounds in Europe. That's why that's why part of me thinks that there was a version of it that had a French narration, but this did have an English narration on it. So it 
probably was made for an American audience to a degree. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. And it's not yeah. like there aren't Americans who needed educating on this. Like there's that kind of amazing interview at the end of that guy visiting from Houston who like that random white guy that they caught to. Um, oh yeah. The guy who was outside of the courthouse. Yeah. And they're like, you know what's going on? He's like, ah, yeah, I don't really know. Like some boy named Huey's locked up and people seem mad. And like, it's just like, damn, like compared to the eloquence and like how deeply informed so many of the party members are when she's interviewing, it's just like, Jesus Christ, dude. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's interesting too, because, um, I think to kind of, to kind of build on what you were saying about your education on the Panthers. Um, I always, um, I don't even remember how young I was when I first learned about them. Probably it was in high school. Maybe it was in college, but, um, it's interesting because I think people viewed their stances on things as black and white, just simply in part because they wore black and their, their name was the black Panthers, but Really, they stood for equality for everybody. So they would say black power, but they would also say, um, you know, power to all the people, like not just not just black folks in general, but really anybody who was poor, anybody who was disenfranchised, you know, um, and these are just things that you don't, especially back in the day, you didn't really, you know, like you weren't really taught those types of things in school. Um, And in addition to that, there was a part I noticed in the narration where the narrator said that the Panthers took advantage of a, not a loophole, but of a law that basically said you can carry guns as long as it's open carry. And um, I knew that they had done that. I probably wouldn't word it as a loophole, but I I knew that that's something that they had done. So So when she said that in the film, the person I automatically thought of was Ronald Reagan, who was governor of California at the time. And um, it's interesting that... um, you know, you have all these people on the right that are super, super um, pro-gun and pro-NRA and all this type of shit now. But back then, the Panthers was actually the first group under Ronald Reagan as governor of California. They're the ones that actually got rid of that law because it was a bunch of black folks that had guns. Yeah. So it's interesting to kind of see these documentaries because I try to take in, if there's if there's a documentary about one particular subject, I try to see as many of them about that one thing as possible because all of them seem to cover an angle that the others miss for whatever reason or just don't concentrate on. And um, and Reagan in particular isn't mentioned in this documentary at all. But it's a short film, which is understandable. But I immediately saw him. You know what I mean? I immediately was like, Reagan is behind. Like, like Reagan's shadow is also kind of looming in the background of this short film, you know? Yeah, that is a pretty big omission. But yeah, I, I do wonder if, if she had made this film like in the 80s or something, if that wouldn't be the case. But yeah, I what you were saying about uh, the open carry law it reminded me of like maybe my favorite line in the narration where she says, Their war cries frighten and exasperate the white racists who consider them black fascists forgetting that they are much less dangerous than the police and much less fascist. Right. That, yeah. That was, that was like such a, such a, um, you know, she wasn't the one saying it. She was just saying what, how people viewed it. And I, I just kept thinking to myself, like, I don't even know how, like, these people don't even know what fascism is if they're viewing these folks as fascists. 
You know what right. I mean? Like it was, it's, it's so crazy. And, um, and I, you know, I mean, this movie probably rings closer to things that I think about now than of, than all of the three that we watched, because I just think about how, you know, people on the right who are fascists are using some of these same tactics from the left to try to, to, to try to, um, validate their 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 arguments or their or their stances on things whether it be from mask mandates or or just anything from gun laws to whatever um and 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 it's and it's infuriating actually like you know what i mean mm-hmm. be- because you see a film like this and these people aren't they're they're not arguing from some random shit in a vacuum like this is like this is i mean if we think it's bad now imagine like if we if we think we're on the quote-unquote verge of a civil war today in 2022 or or something that could end up being really bad whether it be a fucking world war three situation like what's going on with fucking russia and ukraine and the u.s or just this insane pandemic that's made everybody go crazy um Man, what a powder keg that shit must have been like back in the 1960s. Like to be a panther openly, outwardly be a panther, that's a lot of courage. You know what I mean? Yeah. I I actually started wondering if there was an FBI file on Agnes Varda for just making this film. Is she being surveilled because of this? And like granted, she's not based in the US, but if she were an American filmmaker who's doing a documentary on them and just was in the US making other films, she made a film about Cuba and a film about the Panthers. I have to wonder that somebody was paying attention to her. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. You know what I mean? Um Yeah. But yeah, it was it was it was a really good movie. I I um it was kind of trippy to see like all these people in one place, man, to see like to see Eldridge Cleaver, to see Huey P. Newton. Like, like granted, Huey was locked up, but there's a shot that shows Stokely Carmichael, Eldridge Cleaver, and Bobby Seale all standing next to each other. Like, around on a time the stage, when... yeah. Yes, not on the stage. Around a time when, they, when she does the narration of the whole fascist thing and the camera's panning over the, oh, over dude, the line yes, of people. Oh, yes, when they're, like, going through their... Uh, military yes. trainings. Yes. When they cut to the people looking at them, you see these three giants. And I'm like, I don't I don't know if there's any other thing I've ever seen them all together before in the same mm-hmm. in the same place. I I think my favorite part of the film is just watching Kathleen Cleaver um when she's talking to the filmmakers and she's talking about how, you know, their hairdos and mm-hmm. um and how they wear their hair and how black women are told that you're you're not attractive and this, that, and the third. And, it, it, you know, it's interesting because she makes this point about how your skin's not white enough or your eyes aren't light enough. And I feel like Catherine Cleaver, if you didn't, if you don't know any better, you might maybe think that she was a white woman. You know yeah. what I mean? Just looking at her and she's gorgeous. Like just, she's like so beautiful in the scene. She's like, isn't it beautiful? Isn't it beautiful? All right. <laughs> it's, yes, it's. <laughs> like, yeah. I love that part. And, and like, and like, the filmmakers are just like, yeah, and everybody just breaks up laughing. That's my. That's probably totally. my favorite part of the film. You know, um, uh, it's it's really nice. And then seeing all the other women talk about like why they wear their hair like that, and um, and uh, again ties kind of back to 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 Malcolm X a bit, and. Um, 
when he came from when he came back from Mecca, he started growing out his beard. So if you ever see images of Malcolm X in general, if you see him with a clean shave, odds are that was before he went to Mecca. Anytime you see him with a beard is within the last year of his life. And yeah. um he makes a point about that when he's asked about his beard and they're like, is this new? And he's like, I think that black people are going to, as they take off the shackles of colonialism, they're going to have more of a cultural um, reconnection with Africa. It may not be a physical one, but culturally, we're going to probably line ourselves up with it, which means wearing our hair more natural, which means accepting how, what we actually look like instead of trying to assimilate. And that's what I kept thinking of when I was watching this and seeing all these beautiful people have beautiful hair and have their hair as as it naturally is you know what I mean and um seeing Kathleen Cleaver do that I, I just remember that that just really stuck out to me and I just thought it was a beautiful scene it is yeah and I feel like Anis Rada also is like a little bit entranced by all the fashion yeah um, there's so many <laughs> shots of her just like panning up the outfits of people because everyone's just incredibly fucking hot yeah <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah, that that's like a big part of this this movie, um, which maybe is what I was referring to when I said that she finds the joy in in a lot of it, and um, is that that and the music um, and dance. Oh yeah, and that she was clearly entranced with. So absolutely, it's fun, cool. Um, should we talk about the big boy? Let's talk about it. Yeah, far from Vietnam. Was this sixty seven? This was sixty seven. Yeah. Cool. So as I had mentioned earlier, um, for the listeners, it's like a film that a lot of heavy hitters in French cinema contributed to. So it's got Godard, Varda, Chris Marker, um, Alan René, Claude Lelouch, William Klein, and Joris Ivins. Um, so they all contributed to a somewhat chaptered film, but there's no clear attributing of which director did which chapter. It seems like sort of a collaborative or at least a like joint statement in a solidarity of uh those in vietnam during the vietnamese war yeah so yeah you and i sort of were, were talking about wondering at you know which parts were varda's because um, it is hard to tell yeah i just started assuming that when i heard um um heard a woman narrating that might have been her but i didn't know if another woman was i, I didn't know if there was another female filmmaker associated with it it's a good question i don't think so um but i also know that like specifically chris marker loves using female narrators oh gotcha Um, okay so i don't i don't think any of the voices were hers yeah i'm not sure if i was trying to pinpoint at some point um if she if if her voice was the same one from the panther doc Totally. That's a, it's a good guess. And I guess maybe if I had watched it in the opposite order, like you did, I would have had a better, better ear for it. Um, but yeah, I, I did have my guesses, um, just based on like camera movement, subject matter, or stylistic choices. Um, that part, it's very brief, but the part where a bunch of kids are sort of play acting the Vietnam War. So there's like first there's a group of very young children like on seesaws oh and then yeah it, later it's like some teenagers on the roof that to me felt kind of varda-y <laughs> the beginning of that sequence tilts down like along this very vivid wall mural which is like always kind of a one of her signposts of like 
it's Varda. There's a wall mural. Um, <laughs> and yeah. And then I think just like the, the kids, um, the sort of vibrancy of that, especially as opposed to some of the much more serious or archival yeah, footage, man. um, felt Varda to me. Um, the other sequence that I potentially had a guess on was, um, the sequence about Norman Morrison. Yes. Uh, and his widow and the Vietnamese woman living in France. Yes. I had no trouble understanding it at all because, uh, because of the, the kind of person that uh, Norman was. Quite often at, at mealtime, we um, would talk about uh, the incongruity of our... Um, health and prosperity and our three uh, healthy lovely children uh, contrasting this with the suffering of the people in vietnam and how difficult it was to know that we were in some way responsible for this how difficult it was to live with this that 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 was i was leaning into that one as well um yeah and also i just learned about him same but that to me struck me as potentially Varda's handiwork um I think in its approach of a such a vast global like event and issue coming at it from a different angle than anyone would naturally think where it's like it's this very specific incident right. which is horrible and graphic but in the context of an entire war yeah just a dude um but it it, it sort of encapsulates so much as far as like the varied opinions in America about the war, um, sort of Vietnamese people globally, how they viewed the American government versus the American people. And I loved what Yu Yen says, the Vietnamese woman in it, mm -hmm. um, about how she hopes that the people of Vietnam and the people of America will unite against what is wrong, uh, namely the American government. And Man. Yeah, I just I found that sequence very moving. It's it's a crazy thing. It's like that movie that movie really had my blood boiling. Like like yeah. a lot, you know. Um I was particularly angry um at any time I saw a bunch of these some of I guess many of them were young men, young white men to be specific. And um like when they were saying bomb Hanoi Oh my god. I yeah. was like I was really really upset. And then there was another one um further on down the line where it was a bunch of people protesting um and there was this guy who was like you're yellow, you don't know what's going on, blah blah blah. There was only one dude in that crowd who I disagreed with, but he was actually trying to have a conversation. He was saying how you know, speak like he was being critical of the of the North Vietnamese and, but he was talking like he wasn't shouting from the sideline saying some bullshit. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. Like, and like a mob going. of people. Yeah. Yeah. I fucking hated that shit because these same motherfuckers are the ones that are doing this shit. I'm like, yo, first of all, nobody's stopping you people since y'all love war so much. No one's stopping you in the middle of a war that's being perpetuated by a country that has a draft no one's stopping y'all to go to a fucking recruitment center and sign up. Y'all want to fight so bad. Where are you? 
You can't you 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 love democracy so much in another country, but when it's being expressed in your own, you have a problem with it. And on top of that, it's like, bro, y'all love blood and guts so much. Why don't you put your fucking life on the line? Go go fight for the country that you supposedly love so much. It's easy to say this shit when you're the ones that aren't gonna be pushed to the front of the line, like black people who are gonna be pawns in a war like this or other people of color that are going to go to another country and drop bombs on people or shoot and kill people that have nothing to do with them. It's easy to say that shit to them and, and stand on a sideline and literally do that. That shit got me so angry. I'm like, bro, where, where are y'all? Y'all love this country so much. Step, step up. Step up, Yosh. Let's see how big your balls are. Put your dick on the table. Let's let's see you do it. Let's see you strap up and go to a war that you supposedly believe in. They're never going to do it. They're a bunch of cowards. They want a bunch of other people to do it in front of them that they'll never follow behind and will get upset that these same people who go to another country only to come back and not have anywhere near more rights. It's incredible to me. Yeah. You know what I mean? So... Anyway, that's a that's my mini rant that there may be more, but that that's that that part of the film really upset me. Yeah. Like really, really got me upset. You know, um Screaming Bomb Hanoi just it was just like was beyond offensively like just it was it was that was just flagrant to me. You know? Yeah, yeah. Um and it's such a the image of it too is so Ugh. repulsive. It's just all these white young white men with their like thick necks. Right. Uh, just shouting that. Um, and like you said, with nothing of themselves on the line. Nothing. And I think this movie does do a really good job of of addressing uh, America's distance from the war. Uh, obviously, physically, psychologically, just it's elsewhere. That whole scene where the guy is protesting napalm. Right. Napalm. 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 Napalm is jelly gasoline. It's used. It's being used in Vietnam to uh, burn up people in villages. It clings. It clings to people. Well, napalm is jelly gasoline. And then everyone's like, "Oh, do you know what napalm is? I don't know what napalm is." And like, he has to explain what napalm is. Right. Um, was wild. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. What this country did to like it and so many things tie into it, too, because, um, you know, not to keep referencing other things that I've seen, but my movie watching last month was really terrible. So this month I really was trying to step it up. So I started watching Back a bunch of vengeance. things. Backward Vengeance. Yeah. You know, um, and I watched this. I watched this documentary on Muhammad Ali and. Um, oh, which one? It's called Made in Miami. It's really good. If you've ever seen the film One Night in Miami that Regina King directed, this is a perfect prelude to that. It's a perfect primer for it because it's about the fight that, that he had in Miami was his final fight as Cassius Clay. And the rematch was his very first fight as Muhammad Ali. And that fight was actually in Maine. So there's probably a story in there from Miami to Maine. Who knows? But um, but yeah, like he t he he when he became champion, he immediately announced that he was a member of the Nation of Islam. And he was going by Cassius X. And um, a lot of people were upset because they thought for sure that he was going to lose the title. And when he won by rematch, they were really disappointed and they tried to draft him into the Vietnam War. And he famously said, the Viet Cong ain't done nothing to me. Right. You know what I'm saying? Like in America, 
you're the one that opposes me, like meaning like the U.S. government and white people like, you know, and one of the things that I also didn't know is that when he came back after winning a gold medal, he couldn't get served at a white counter and with the with the gold medal around his neck. And he actually took his gold medal, his Olympic gold medal and threw it in the trash. Ooh, America. Isn't it crazy? It's like, it's like really, it's super insane and foul. And I think that like seeing those folks back in the day protest, I really commend them, you know, um, because they were standing in the face of some really, some really tough shit. And it's interesting. I was talking about uh, how I had recently seen the document. I, I not recently, but I seen this documentary. I think it was called The Last Party. And I was like, man, I can't believe that the stuff that they're talking about in 1991, 92 are so relevant to things that are happening in 2021 and 2020 and uh, 2022. The only real substitute if we're talking about a virus is in the early 90s, they were talking about HIV and today we're talking about COVID. And when I mentioned this to my girlfriend's mother, she said, we were saying this 30 years before that documentary you saw. So in the 60s, we were protesting all these things. So when people were still talking about them in 1990, we were kind of like going crazy about it. So, yeah, I mean, and also the way the doc opens, the missiles and shit being transferred. Um, Man. And just, yeah, basically the American war effort and the American resources toward the war and how much money. Yeah was being poured into it and I think the narration says like this is a war of the rich against the war of the poor and like as far as things that go back in time that's like the oldest yeah struggle there is and and one thing about all three of these films is just how much they intersect and how everyone acknowledged the global solidarity of that struggle like there's references in the Cuba doc to Vietnam right there's references definitely in the Black Panther um I think it's Stokely Carmichael's speech when he talks about how they're at war. Right, right. Um, and he says, like, America never declared, officially declared war on Vietnam, and yet they're in Vietnam. Right, so right. why are we any less at war with the American government as black people? Right. Um, and, yeah, and I think that it's just depressingly the same struggle, like, for fucking decades, uh, just surfacing in, in new ways. Um, yeah, man. And I, I wanted to ask you about one of the segments, and I, I'm also curious if it's one of the ones you skipped because it is a bit, I don't know, pedantic or <laughs> whatever word you want to use, but that scene with the Claude Ritter, the writer, and he goes on that like big monologue. He's in the room with the woman. Yes, who's not saying a fucking word to him. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, that one was the one that I w- had me pausing and rewinding a fuck ton, just trying to take it all in and also just understand exactly what its place was in the movie. But he says something similar to the point I was trying to make of just like, it's the same fire and like, you know, firemen go to this fire, kill themselves by the thousands, but eventually put it out. But then it's just going to resurface somewhere else. Um, I loved it. Everything that he was saying, it took me, it was the first part of the movie to take me out because I thought all I was, I didn't, you know, this is kind of like a mashup of a bunch of short films that it feels like, or like an anthology. And I didn't really fully take that in. At first I thought everything was popping up like a chapter, like they were just kind of displaying, 
this is what this part is going to be. But once that part came in, I was like, oh, this is an anthology. I loved everything that he was saying, um, but I hit pause hard after he was done. I was like, I need to shut this computer down for a second. And I was like, <laughs> it, it was a lot. It was a whole lot. And, and it was just like, yo, this country cries and cries and cries about how we're the victim or we're the ones that are trying to do right in the world and other places. And I'm not going to say that America has no ability to do that. But at that time, it felt like his monologue tied into some of the words in the beginning of the film where it was like they couldn't handle the big bad wolf, the big, the big mighty country with the big all-powerful military couldn't handle that a country that was poor compared to them and had no sense of a military compared to them wouldn't take wouldn't heal like basically yeah it's like this we're gonna keep going to war to punish you to get the message through your head and i just feel like they couldn't they couldn't take that they couldn't take that what do you mean you're not backing down you know what i'm saying like that that it just felt like punishment for years like all of those people who died even some of the idiot carnival barkers that were on the side that eventually ended up in that war and ended up in a body bag being sent back to this country, they didn't have to die, yo. Those folks didn't have to die. Like bodies by the hundreds that were that were being being sent back to this country every fucking day for years. That shit did not have to happen. At what point do you realize that you're the you're the villain in all of this? Right. You know what I mean? At what point do Americans realize that, you know, as a whole? I think nowadays we can look back on Vietnam for the most part and we could say that shit was fucking awful. I just don't think we have it in us to not continue to make this mistake over and over and over and over and over again. Like Vietnam was 60 years ago. The war in Iraq was 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 fucking 20 years ago. War in Afghanistan. Now, if we goose step into this dumbass war that could potentially happen now, like we're never going to get it. If a bully doesn't get shown that it can't keep bullying people, it's never going to change. You know, and I, I, I just don't know what more the world needs to see or what more the country needs to see. Um, I feel like we can get to the point where America just has a really tough time getting people recruited into the army. Where people are just like, yo, we're not, we're just not doing this. We're only as mighty as the people that want to actually join the war. If people say no, we're going to be relying on drones, like forever, or like nukes, or, or, or like whatever. And where does that take us? You know what I'm saying? If you don't have any ground forces to go to these countries to invade them and, 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 and like do all these things, if you don't have enough people that are willing to do it and put their lives on the line because their eyes are a bit more open than they were 20 30 40 60 years ago i don't i don't know where you go from there yeah i i would hope we'd get to that point but i feel like this movie had a lot to say too about like even with evolving visibility of the war they talk a lot about it being you know one of the first wars to be televised into people's homes right uh still it being filtered through a piece of furniture Right. Sort of takes the horror out of it. Right, um, right, that's true. And it's still not, not enough uh, to sort of break through the apathy. Um, 
which is super fucking depressing. And one thing that I found really interesting about that Claude Ritter sequence was sort of he was saying even the anti-war contingency in America, in Europe, are sort of complicit or culpable in some way, where he talks about Vietnam being sort of the fashionable victims of the time. Mais si on se met à regarder pourquoi celle-ci, pas celle-là, leur revenu annuel, la couleur de leur peau, hein, on commence à trouver de drôles de choses en soi, au fond de soi, une ségrégation des morts, une lutte de classe des morts. But that, like, the struggle in Sudan is not getting nearly as much attention. Exactly, um, yes. Yeah, super valid point, and also just interesting that it was in this movie because it felt like it was kind of pointing the finger at the filmmakers themselves, like, hey, French filmmakers, like, right. what are you doing? Right. No, it's it's true. Like, I, I think that that kind of came full circle for me for other things that I was watching and paying attention to as well. Like, I, I in addition to this to that Muhammad Ali documentary, I watched a documentary about Jesse Owens and about how he um, went to the 1936 Olympics in Berlin, in Germany. And and he, he shattered records and stuff like that. And Hitler refused to shake his hand and stuff like that. Um, but he had this really interesting point where he said, you know, it's one thing to point your finger at Hitler. And, you know, he that's not my country. I'm not German. So him not wanting to shake my hand and with this dumb idea that's in his head, and, and I'm paraphrasing here, that's one thing. It's another thing to come back to America. And this is before Muhammad Ali. It's the same type of thing. He's an Olympic champion and he couldn't get seated at a restaurant. He couldn't eat with certain people. He couldn't be around certain people because he had to deal with Jim Crow laws. So it's like, depending on who the victim supposedly is, people pay more attention to it. You know what I mean? Or who the who the perpetrator is. I feel like Vietnam, Vietnam would have been like Korea, I guess. People wouldn't have paid attention to it as much if technology didn't catch up with being able to show people what it was. You know what I mean? Photographs only take so long to travel around the world, but television is right there. So when people could be like, yo, what are we doing in this country, bro? Like, what are we doing as a as a as a nation? What are we doing here? And France is catching wind of it and other places are catching wind of it. South America is catching wind of it. Africans are catching wind of it. They're really seeing now like what America is doing. And, you know, you know, it's funny because I usually think of the first war that I think of that was televised as Desert Storm. But that's the first war that I knew. But, you know, you're absolutely right. Vietnam is the first mass media war that we saw on TV, that people saw on TV every night. And, and even then... They didn't get the full picture. There was no CNN back then. There was no 24-hour news cycles back then. For them to be as upset as they were back then and they still didn't get the full picture, imagine what it would be like if you could sit on TV, sit down watching a TV and effectively watch a war in real time as it develops. They would they would probably they would probably been millions of people in the street protesting this thing. I, in my head, I was tying it to, in the Black Panthers short, how there's that brief interview with those um, young people who are sort of part of the educational initiative where they have to go fucking, like, door to door to educate people about the Black Power movement and, like, like what is going on in America. And it's just like, oh, compared to today when we're all over the internet. Right. Um, it's just that that much... It took that much mobilization yes, um, 
is mind boggling. And, and just a testament to exactly what you were saying before of like just how courageous it was back then to, to do something. Extremely, extremely courageous. And, and, you know, it's, it's just, it's just a wild thing to think about. Like there are people that are around to this day that were veterans from that war, you know, like Mm -hmm. one of my coworkers, his dad is a Vietnam vet and his dad is as old as my father. My father is, you know, he wasn't a citizen at the time and he wasn't in this country at the time, but I can only imagine if he was born here, he would have been, he would have been in a draft. He'd have been, he'd have been there just like anybody else. And it's crazy to think that this is yesterday, but it's today. It's still, it's still here. And again, those same types of folks that I say that, that really, really irk me, they're the ones talking all this stuff about patriotism when they don't live up to the very examples that they're trying to criticize people for not having. Right. You know what I mean? And, and like when you see how things tie into today, where you have like a lot more far right people making themselves visible, like, I don't know if you've been aware of what's been happening in Boston and stuff like that, but there have been some some Nazi folks that have been kind of like showing showing up in certain places. Which has been really weird, but I also I also feel like these folks know how to pick their spots. They're not making themselves visible. They're they're trying to be agitators. They're not aggressors. They're trying to be agitators because they want you to pay attention because the same way social media could help spread the good word on social on something, social media can also make something seem way bigger than it actually is. Mm-hmm. And these people are doing a lot of that. Like they know where to show up. They're not showing up in Harvard Square in the middle of the day where they know everybody's going to see them, where they know they might have to deal with some people who are going to be willing to confront them. They're showing up on weekends outside of places where nobody's walking and they're posting it to their social media just to have it up there. You know what I mean? And, and to try to get people to pay attention. And don't get me wrong, people should be paying attention. But these, these idiots, they're cowards. You know, the difference between these fools that are doing stuff now, at least those folks who are screaming those awful things from the sidelines, they didn't have masks on their face. You could see who those people were. Nowadays, people probably wouldn't do that because they know they'd probably get identified on social media and then they'd get outed and then they lose jobs and lose opportunities and stuff like that. But even then, that being said, if this is what they really believe, you'd think that they would they wouldn't care about losing a job. Right. They would be like, look, we care about this. We're just going to put ourselves out there. You know what I mean? But they're a bunch of cowards, man. And they don't, and they don't believe in any of that. So to see that, that, that's something that's even was going on way back then, 60 years ago. Um, it's, I mean, it's, it, it could be deflating to think like, I don't know if we're, I don't know. I don't know if we're going to get to a problem, like, like to a human solution to these things, you know? Um, I'm just trying to think, was there any, like, uplifting or hopeful element to this film? I love seeing people have pride in their culture. And I honestly love seeing people, even when they're at a disadvantage, I love to see people stand up for themselves. And there was a part where they looked like they were, like, not mimes, but these two people who were kind of like gestures. Yes.
the other clowns. The clowns. As, like LBJ and McNamara. I loved it. I, I loved that too. I loved it because I'm like, man, this is a spooky time to do that because those people could get hurt. Like, we don't know if those people survived. They might have got shelled or something like that. We have no idea. Yeah. You know what I mean? So to still to try to find a way to try to get these beautiful people to laugh. Mm-hmm. I that was really touching for me because all of those people who were watching them from little children to adults I saw it, it just felt like I was looking at nothing but women just, just just like looking at them that that actually made me smile because I was like man you know they really have a problem right now because they're in the middle of a fucking war where in the middle of that performance a bomb could go off and they're dead and to still say we're gonna do this we're gonna perform to make people laugh but also be critical of of our oppressor i i was impressed by that totally yeah i love any manifestation of joy as defiance yes i think it's like one of the most moving things uh in humans i guess and also i i love the scene it wasn't so joyful but toward the beginning where it showed the act of making the one to two person shelters for when the air raids yes were going down and um so for the listener's benefit it's like these sort of concrete buckets almost that they would bury underground and they could house one to two people yeah and if the air raid sirens start going people would just lift the lid climb into them and take shelter um right and it was so the documentation of it initially i think was to make a point that like you know these are pretty ancient technologies that don't require the military budget that america is using for this and yet it's been perfectly successful resistance yeah um and and it but the scene that really got me was when the filmmaker was carrying the camera and the car just going along these roads with these people hiding and just how casual yes like it was like people were just reading the newspaper in these shelters or even like a couple people were smiling at the camera and that i found so moving and it's and it's like like these are sticks and stones level types of archaic defenses you know this is all they have you hope that they survive a air raid in these little tiny little things but these these people are not fighting back on any even playing field against the u.s at this time it's like human will that's really the biggest defense that they have um like there was one part in the documentary where they interview fidel yeah that part was crazy to me because again this is really him in the middle of like we're talking really fidel castro not in the 90s or the 2000s we're talking about in when they're trying to assassinate this guy yeah. Like this is this is what we're talking about this dude. Sobre la cuestión acerca de si la lucha armada es el único camino para la liberación. Lo que puedo responder es que por lo menos en las condiciones de nuestro país no había otro camino. And when he had that whole speech about um the Vietnam have shown the world that the biggest military and the biggest um, the biggest, strongest superpower in the world still couldn't beat the will of the people. I fucking loved that. I was like, I, and again, I don't, I'm not 
someone who knows enough about Fidel Castro to to say anything negative or positive about him like that. But I just thought that was a really ill point to be like, yo, these people are literally defending against bombs with their bodies and they're still surviving. It's and working. you yeah. And it's working. You have to do <laughs> they're not you cannot punish them into quitting. They will not quit. They will not let it go. They were they're not gonna just let this slide and go, you got it. They're not breaking. And I right. I fucking love that you know and isn't it there's a also an archival clip of ho chi minh yes the same thing where he's like i don't care if this war lasts two years 10 years 20 years we will keep fighting it full stop yeah. i thought that i thought that was ho chi minh you know what i mean um because he was speaking french so it threw me off you know what i mean yeah yeah, yeah. but um but yeah i i i thought that was like those were the bright spots for me like totally. the human the human will of these folks who they weren't going to go. I mean, you know, I'm of Caribbean descent. My family's from Haiti and um, my ancestors were slaves. You know what I mean? So it's like the same sense of pride I feel that Haitian folks have to know that like we're the descendants of people who had the first successful slave rebellion. That's how I felt when I was watching Ho Chi Minh talk about his people in Vietnam. We are not giving up ever. Like it's not going to happen. Yes, you can drop your bombs. Yes, you can kill us, which all these things are awful too. We're not going to stop. I, I I just wonder when the message will get through future leaders' heads where it's like, yo, we can't beat everybody, bro. The countries that we bully, their memories are going to be long, man. Mm-hmm. So at some point in the future, people are going to be like, yo, like, no, we're, we're not going to let this rock. You know what I mean? And you're going to have to deal with it. What are you willing to lose? Are you willing to lose 2 million people in a war to prove a point? So yeah, so I I I was really uh, moved by those parts in the documentary. I, I just seeing how strong a people could be in the face of the worst types of things in modern history, um, and still be like, no, we're not gonna break. I I really I was moved by that. That was really touching. Yeah, absolutely. I'm I'm glad you remembered those parts and remembered to bring them up. It reminded me um, to make an outside reference myself. I read Blood in My Eye, George oh, Jackson's George, book. Oh, George Jackson, yeah. Yeah, I read that last year. Um, and it's all about guerrilla warfare tactics hmm. in America. Ex- exactly what, what Fidel Castro was talking about in that interview of like, it works because it uses the people's strength. And like, that strength doesn't look like the military might that America or whatever superpower has, but it's like a knowledge of the land. Yeah. Again, people have long memories, man. You know, people, groups of people and nations do not forget when they were kicked, when they were down. They don't forget that, especially by someone or, or, or by or by a country like the U.S., you know. Um, I just don't know how it changes because you can't blame people for not like, like not wanting to take it easy on America. But I, I just don't know the end result of something like this. Like, I I really wish that people could really understand that we're, hopefully we're here to love each other and we're here to kind of, you know, build future generations to try to inhabit this planet in a, in a, in a, in a good way. You know what I'm saying? Like war is really just, war is really not it. Like, like it's really not the move and never has been. Yeah. It never has been. And it's disgusting that, male pride just gets in the way of 
so many things for these fucking people. You know what I mean? Because it's been more, it's been it's been men who've been doing this. You know what I'm saying? Um, and it's it's just it's just a super bizarre thing. And 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 um, like I I'm I'm really appreciative that you told me to check these films out because they all gave me a little bit of something. And um, I really do. I really yeah. do hope that we figure this out and put things together the right way. Agreed. Um, yeah, I'm grateful to you for checking these three out. It's a pretty heavy slate for a Monday afternoon. Yeah. Uh, happy President's Day. <laughs> yeah, I know. Oh, my God, dude. Oh, my God. Yes, that's right. It is President's Day. So, oh, yeah. fuck that's... America. Wow. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> wow. I, f- I forgot. I forgot that it was a president's day. Yeah. Wow. What a day. What a day. Holy yeah. shit. But okay. thank you, Billy. This was so fucking rad. You're the best. Dude, no, thank you, dude. This was this was amazing, you know. Um this was a lot of fun. Um and I would I would I would do it again. So Hell yeah. Faces places. Any others you want to see, Queenie. just let me know. Absolutely. El Queenie, El Queenie. Bandera. El Queenie tiene bandera. El Queenie tiene bandera.